This video is part of an audiobook series featuring Principles, Life and Work, written by Ray Dalio in 2017. For more audiobooks, please visit my YouTube channel, find me on Spotify, or check out my website for downloads. Chapter 13, Design Improvements to Your Machine to Get Around Your Problems. Once you've successfully diagnosed the problems standing in the way of achieving your goals, you need to design paths for solving them. Designs need to be based on deep and accurate understandings, which is why diagnosis is so important. For me, it's an almost visceral process of staring at problems and using the pain they cause me to stimulate my creative thinking. This is exactly how it was for the team responsible for client service analytics, and especially for Bridgewater's co-CEO David McCormick, who was then head of the client service department. Coming out of the diagnosis, he, quick, he moved quickly to design and implement changes, firing team members who had allowed standards to slip and reflected deeply on what new designs he could implement to get the right people into the right roles. In selecting his new responsible parties for client service analytics, he picked one of our top investment thinkers who also had extremely high standards and was very outspoken about cases where he saw them slipping and paired him with one of our most experienced managers who knew how to build the right process flows and make sure everything that needed to happen would go precisely as planned. But that wasn't all. When coming up with a new design, it's important to take time to reflect and make sure you're looking at the problems from the highest level. David knew it would be a mistake to look only at this one part of the department because the same slip in quality that had happened there was likely to have occurred in other places too. He needed to think creatively to come up with a design that would build a durable culture of pervasive excellence throughout the entire department. This led to the invention of Quality Day, biannual meetings in which members of the client service department would review each other's mock presentations and memos and give direct feedback on what was good and what wasn't. More importantly, the meetings were a chance to step back and assess whether the ways of ensuring quality were working as expected by bringing in a bunch of tough independent thinkers to offer criticism and get the process realigned on what looks good. Of course, there were many more details in all of David's plans for transforming the department, but the important thing is how all the details and plans extended from a high-level visualization of what was required. Only when you have such a sketch can you begin to fill it in with specifics. Those specifics will be your tasks. Write them down so you don't forget them. While the, while the best designs are drawn from a rich understanding of actual problems, when you're just starting out on something, you often have to design based on anticipated problems as opposed to actual ones. That's why having systematic ways of tracking issues, the issue log, and what people are like, the dot collector, is so, ish, is so useful. Instead of just relying on your best guesses of what might go wrong, you can look at data from priors at bats for yourself and others and come to the design process with understanding rather than having to start from scratch. The most talented designers I know are people who can visualize over time, running through different collections of people from the scale of small teams to large organizations, accurately anticipating the kinds of results they will produce. They excel at design and systemization. Hence, the overriding principle of this chapter, design and systemize your machine. Creativity is also important to this process, as is character, because the most important problems to design around are often the hardest, 
and you need to come up with original ways of addressing them and be willing to make hard choices, especially when it comes to people and who should do what. The following principles delve into designing and how to do it well. 13.1. Build your machine. Focus on each task or case at hand and you will be stuck dealing with them one by one. Instead, build a machine by observing what you're doing and why, extrapolating the relevant principles from the cases at hand, and systemizing that process. It typically takes about twice as long to build a machine as it does to resolve the task at hand, but it pays off many times over because the learning and efficiency compound into the future. 13.2. Systemize your principles and how they will be implemented. If you have good principles that guide you from your values to your day-to-day decisions, but you don't have a systematic way of making sure they're regularly applied, they're not of much use. It's essential to build your most important principles into habits and help others do so as well. Bridgewater's tools and culture are designed to do just that. A. Create great decision-making machines by thinking through the criteria you are using to make decisions while you are making them. Whenever I make an investment decision, I observe myself making it and think about the criteria I used. I ask myself how I would handle another one of those situations and write down my principles for doing so. Then I turn them into algorithms. I am now doing the same for management, and I have gotten in the habit of doing it for all my decisions. Algorithms are principles in action on a continuous basis. I believe that systemized, evidence-based decision-making will radically improve the quality of management. Human managers process information spontaneously using poorly thought-out criteria and are unproductively affected by their emotional biases. These all lead to suboptimal decisions. Imagine what it would be like to have a machine that processes high-quality data using high-quality decision-making principles and criteria. Like the GPS in your car, it would be invaluable, whether you follow all of its suggestions or not. I believe that such tools will be essential in the future, and as I write these words, I am a short time away from getting a prototype online. 13.3. Remember that a good plan should resemble a movie script. The more vividly you can visualize how the scenario you create will play out, the more likely it is to happen as you plan. Visualize who will do what when and the result they'll produce. This is your mental map of your visual of your machine. Recognize that some people are better or worse at visualization. Accurately assess your own abilities and those of others so you can use the most capable people to create your plans. A. Put yourself in the position of pain for a while so that you can gain a richer understanding of what you're designing for, either literally or vicariously through reading reports, job descriptions, etc., temporarily insert yourself into the workflow of the area you're looking at to gain a better understanding of what it is that you are dealing with. As you design, you'll be able to apply what you've learned and revise the machine appropriately as a result. B. Visualize alternative machines and their outcomes and then choose. A good designer is able to visualize the machine and its outcomes in various iterations. First, they imagine how Harry, Larry, and Sally can operate in various ways with various tools and different incentives and penalties. Then they replace Harry with George, and so on, thinking through what the products and people and finances would look like month by month or quarter by quarter under each scenario, and then they choose. 
C. Consider second and third order consequences, not just first order ones. The outcome you get as a first order consequence might be desirable, while the second or third order consequences could be the opposite. So, focusing solely on first order consequences, which people tend to do, can lead to bad decision making. For example, if you ask me if I'd like to not have rainy days, I probably would say yes if I didn't consider the second and third order consequences. D. Use standing meetings to help your organization run like a Swiss clock. Regularly scheduled meetings add to overall efficiency by ensuring that important interactions and to-dos aren't overlooked, eliminating the need for inefficient coordination and improving operations because repetition leads to refinement. It pays to have standardized meeting agendas that ask the same feedback questions in each meeting, such as how effective the meeting was, and non-standard meeting agendas that include things done infrequently, such as quarterly budget reviews. E. Remember that a good machine takes into account the fact that people are imperfect. Design in such a way that you produce good results even when people make mistakes. 13.4. Recognize that design is an iterative process between a bad now and a good then is a work-through-it period. That working through it period is when you, try to, when you try out different processes and people, seeing what goes well or poorly, learning from the iterations and moving forward toward the ideal systematic design. Even with a good future design picture in mind, it will naturally take time and mistakes and learning to get to a good then state. People frequently complain about this kind of iterative process because it tends to be true that people are happier with nothing at all than with something imperfect, even though it would be more logical to have the imperfect thing. That thinking doesn't make sense, so don't let it distract you. A. Understand the power of the cleansing storm. In nature, cleansing storms are big, infrequent events that clear out all the overgrowth that's accumulated during good times. Forests need these storms to be healthy. Without them, there would be more weak trees and a buildup of overgrowth that stifles other growth. The same is true for companies. Bad times that force cutbacks so only the strongest and most essential employees or companies survive are inevitable and can be great, even though they seem terrible at the time. 13.5. Build the organization around goals rather than tasks. Giving each department a clear focus and the appropriate resources to achieve its goals makes the diagnosis of resource allocations more straightforward and reduces job slip. As an example of how this works, at Bridgewater we have a marketing department with a goal to market. That is separate from our client service department, which the goal is to service clients. Even though they do similar things and there would be advantages to having them work together. But marketing and servicing clients are two distinct goals. If they were merged, the department head, salespeople, client advisors, analysts, and others would be giving and receiving conflicting feedback. If asked why clients were receiving relatively poor attention, the answer might be, well, we have incentives to raise sales. If asked why they weren't making sales, the merged department might explain that they need to take care of their clients. A. Build your organization from the top down. An organization is the opposite of a building. Its foundation is at the top, so make sure you hire managers before you hire their reports. Managers can help design the machine and choose the people to complement it. People overseeing departments need to be able to think strategically as well as run the day-to-day. -day. 
If they don't anticipate what's coming up, they'll run the day-to-day off a cliff. B. Remember that everyone must be overseen by a believable person who has high standards. Without strong oversight, there is potential for inadequate quality control, inadequate quit training, and inadequate appreciation of excellent work. Never just trust people to do their jobs well. C. Make sure the people at the top of each pyramid have the skills and focus to manage their direct reports and a deep understanding of their jobs. A few years ago, someone at Bridgewater proposed that our facilities group, the people who take care of the building and grounds, food service and office supplies, etc., should begin to report to our head of technology because of the overlap in the two areas. For example, computers are a facility too. They use electricity. But having the people who are responsible for janitorial services and meals report to a technology manager would be as inappropriate as having technology people report to the person taking care of facilities. These functions, even if they're considered facilities in the broadest sense, are very different, as are the respective skill sets. Similarly, at another time, we talked about putting the folks who work on client agreements under the same manager as those who do counterparty agreements. But that would have been a mistake because the skills required to reach agreements with clients are very different from the skills required to reach agreements with counterparties. It would be wrong to conflate both departments under the general heading of agreements because each calls for specific knowledge and skills. D. In designing your organization, remember that the five-step process is the path to success and that different people are good at different steps. Assign specific people to do each of these steps based on their natural inclinations. For example, the big-picture visionary should be responsible for goal-setting. The taste tester should be assigned the job of identifying and not tolerating problems. The logical detective who doesn't mind probing people should be the diagnoser. The imaginative designer should craft the plan to make the improvements, and the reliable taskmaster should make sure the plan gets executed. Of course, some people can do more than one of these things. Generally, people do two or three well. Virtually, nobody can do them all well. A team should consist of people with all of these abilities, and they should know who is responsible for which steps. E. Don't build the organization to fit the people. Managers will often take the people who work in their organization as a given and try to make the organization work well with them. That's backwards. Instead, they should imagine the best organization and then make sure the right people are chosen for it. Jobs should be created based on the work that needs to be done, not what people want to do or which people are available. You can always search outside to find the people who best click for a particular role. First, come up with the best workflow design, then sketch it out on an organizational chart, visualize how the parts interact, and specify what qualities are required for each job. Only after all that is done should you choose the people to fill the slots. F. Keep scale in mind. Your goals must be the right size to warrant the resources that you allocate to them. An organization might not be big enough to justify having both a sales and an analytics group, for example. Bridgewater successfully evolved from a one-cell organization in which most people were involved in everything to a multicellular organization because we retained our ability to focus efficiently as we grew. Temporarily sharing or rotating resources is fine and is not the same as a merging of responsibilities. On the other hand, the efficiency of an organization decreases as the number of people and or its complexity increases, so keep things as simple as possible. And the larger the organization, the more important are information technology management and cross-departmental communication. G. 
organize departments and sub-departments around the most logical groupings based on gravitational pull. Some groups naturally gravitate toward one another. That gravitational pull might be based on common goals, shared abilities and skills, workflow, physical location, and so forth. Imposing your own structure without acknowledging these magnetic poles will likely result in inefficiency. H. Make departments as self-sufficient as possible so that they have control over the resources they need to achieve their goals. We do this because we don't want to create a bureaucracy that forces departments to requisition resources from a pool that lacks the focus to do the job. I. Ensure that the ratios of senior managers to junior managers and of junior managers to their reports are limited to preserve quality communication and mutual understanding. Generally, the ratio should not be more than 1 to 10, and preferably closer to 1 to 5. Of course, the appropriate ratio will vary depending on how many people your direct reports have reporting to them, the complexity of the jobs they're doing, and a manager's ability to handle several people or projects at once. The number of layers from top to bottom and the ratio of managers to their direct reports will limit the size of an effective organization. J. Consider succession and training in your design. This is a subject I wish I had thought about much earlier in my career. To ensure that your organization continues to deliver results, you need to build a perpetual motion machine that can work well without you. This involves more than the mechanics of your own stepping out, but the selection and training and governance of the new leaders who step up, and most importantly, the pre preservation of the culture and its values. The best approach I've seen for doing this is what companies and organizations like GE, 3G, and the Chinese Politburo do, which is to build a pyramid-like succession pipeline in which the next generation of leaders is exposed to the thinking and decision-making of the current leaders so that they can both learn and be tested. K. Don't just pay attention to your job. Pay attention to how your job will be done if you are no longer around. I wrote about key man risk earlier, which applies the most to those with the largest areas of responsibility, especially the head of a household. If that's you, then you should designate the people who could replace you and have them do your job for a while so they can be vetted and tested. These results should be documented in a manual that the appropriate people can go to if you should be hit by a bus. If all the key people in the organization do this, you will have a strong farm team or at least a clear understanding of vulnerabilities and a plan to deal with them. Remember that a ninja manager is someone who can sit back and watch beauty happen, i.e. an orchestrator. If you are always trying to hire somebody who is as good or better than you at your job, that will free both of you up to go on to other things and build your succession pipeline. Beyond that, visualizing your replacement is an enlightening and productive experience. In addition to taking stock of what you are doing and coming up with both bad and good names, you will start to think about how to get your best people into slots that don't exist yet. Knowing that you will have to test them by letting them do their job without interference, you will be motivated to train them properly before the test. And, of course, the stress testing will help you learn and adapt, which will lead to better results. L. Use double-do rather than double-check to make sure mission-critical tasks are done correctly. Double-checking has a much higher rate of errors than double-doing, which is having two different people do the same task so that they produce two independent answers. This not only ensures better answers, but will allow you to see the differences in people's performance and abilities. 
I use double dues in critical areas such as finance where large amounts of money are at risk. And because an audit is only as effective as the auditor is knowledgeable, remember that a good double check can only be done by someone capable of double doing. If the person double checking the work isn't capable of doing the work himself, how could he possibly evaluate it accurately? M. Use consultants wisely and watch out for consultant addiction. Sometimes hiring an external consultant is the best fit for your design. Doing so can get you precisely the amount of specialized expertise you need to tackle a problem. When you can outsource, you don't have to worry, worry about managing, and that's a real advantage. If a position is part-time and requires highly specialized knowledge, I would prefer to have it done by consultants or outsiders. At the same time, you need to be aware of the chronic use of consultants to do work that should be done by your employees. This will cost you in the long run and erode your culture. Also, make sure you are careful not to ask consultants to do things that they don't normally do. They will almost certainly revert to doing things in their usual way. Their own employers will demand it. When evaluating whether to use a consultant, consider the, the following factors. 1. Quality control. When someone doing work for you is an employee, you are responsible for the quality of their work. But when the person working for you works for another company, you are operating by their standards, so it's important to know whether their standards are as high or higher than yours. 2. Economics. If a full-time person is required, it is almost certainly more cost-effective to create a position. Consultants' daily rates add up to considerably more than the annualized cost of a full-time person. 3. Institutionalization of knowledge. Someone who is around your environment on an ongoing basis will gain knowledge and an appreciation of your culture that no outsider can. 4. Security. Having outsiders do the job substantially increases your security risks, especially if you can't see them at work and monitor whether they follow proper precautions, like not leaving sensitive documents on the desk. You have to consider whether you should be outsourcing or developing capabilities in-house. Though temps and consultants are good for a quick fix, they won't augment your capacities in the long term. 13.6. Create an organizational chart to look like a pyramid with straight lines down that don't cross. The whole organization should look like a series of descending pyramids, with the number, but the number of layers should be limited to minimize hierarchy. A. Involve the person who is the point of the pyramid when encountering cross-departmental or cross-sub-departmental issues. Imagine an organizational chart as a pyramid that consists of numerous pyramids. When issues involve parties not in the same part of the pyramid, it is generally desirable to involve the person who is at the point of the pyramid and thus has the perspective and knowledge to weigh the trade-offs and make informed decisions. B. Don't do work for people in another department or grab people from another department to do work for you unless you speak to the person responsible for overseeing the other department. If there is a dispute about this, it needs to be resolved at the point of the pyramid. C. Watch out for department slip. This happens when a support department mistakes its responsibility to provide support with a mandate to determine how the thing they are supporting should be done. An example of this sort of mistake would be if the facilities group thought it should determine what facilities we should have. While support departments should know the goals of the people they're supporting and provide feedback regarding possible choices, they are not the ones to determine the vision. 13.7. Create guardrails when needed, and remember it's better not to guardrail at all. 
Even when you find people who are great clicks for your design, there will be times when you'll want to build guardrails around them. No one is perfect. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses. And as hard as you look, you won't always be able to find everything you want in one person. So look down on your machine and the people you choose for your roles. And think about where you might need to supplement your design by adding people or processes to ensure that each job is done excellently. Remember, guardrailing is meant to help people who can by and large do their jobs well. It's intended to help good people perform better, not to help failing people reach the bar. If you're trying to guardrail someone who is missing the core capabilities required, you should probably just fire them and look for someone who will be a better click. It's better for them both. A good guardrail typically takes the form of a team member whose strengths compensate for the weaknesses of the team member who needs to be guardrailed. A good guardrailing relationship should be firm without being overly rigid. Ideally, it should work like two people dancing. They're literally pushing against each other, but with a lot of mutual give and take. Of course, having someone in a job who needs to be guardrailed is not as good as having someone in a job who will naturally do the right thing. Strive for that. A. Don't expect people to recognize and compensate for their own blind spots. I constantly see people form wrong opinions and make bad decisions, even though they've made the same kind of mistakes before, and even though they know that what they're doing is so illogical and harmful. I used to think that they would avoid these pitfalls when they became aware of their blind spots, but typically that's not the case. Only rarely do I hear someone recuse himself from offering an opinion because they are not capable of forming a good one in a particular area. Don't bet on people to save themselves. Proactively guardrail them, or better yet, put them in roles in which it's impossible for them to make the types of decisions they should not be making. B. Consider the cloverleaf design. In situations where you're unable to identify one excellent responsible party for a role, which is always best, find two or three believable people who care deeply about producing excellent results and are willing to argue with each other and escalate their disagreements if necessary. Then, set up a design in which they check and balance each other. Though it's not optimal, such a system will have a high probability of effectively sorting the issues you need to examine and resolve. 13.8. Keep your strategic vision the same while making appropriate tactical changes as circumstances dictate. Bridgewater's values and strategic goals have been the same since the beginning. To produce excellent results, meaningful work, and meaningful relationships through radical truth and transparency. But its people, systems, and tools have changed over 40-plus years as we have grown from a one-person company to a 1,500-person organization, and they can continue to change while maintaining values and strategic goals as newer generations replace old ones. That can happen for organizations in much the same way as it happens for families and communities. To help nurture that, it is desirable to reinforce the, the traditions and reasons for them, as well as to make sure the values and strategic goals are imbued in the successive leaders and the population as a whole. A. Don't put the expedient ahead of the strategic. People often tell me, people often tell me they can't deal with the longer-term strategic issue because they have too many pressing issues they need to solve right away. But the rushing into ad hoc solutions while kicking the proverbial can down the road is a path to slaughter. Effective managers pay attention both to imminent problems and to problems that haven't hit them yet. 
They constantly feel the tug of the strategic path because they worry about not getting to their ultimate goal and they are determined to continue their process of discovery until they do so. While they might not have the answer right away, and they might not be able to come up with it by themselves, through a combination of creativity and character, they eventually make all the necessary upward loops. B. Think about both the big picture and the granular details and understand the connections between them. Avoid fixating on irrelevant details. You have to determine what's important and what's unimportant at each level. For example, imagine you were designing a house. First, you need to start with the big picture. Your house will sit on a plot of land, and you have to think through where the water comes from, how the house gets hooked up to the power grid, and so on. Then, you need to decide how many rooms it will have, where the floors will go, where you need windows, and so on. When designing the plan, you need to think about all these things and connect them, but that doesn't mean that you actually need to go out and pick the hinges for the door yourself. You just need to know that you'll need a door with hinges and how it fits into the bigger picture of the house. 13.9. Have good control so that you are not exposed to the dishonesty of others. Don't assume that people are operating in your interest rather than their own. A higher percentage of the population than you might imagine will cheat if given the opportunity. When offered the choice of being fair with you or taking more for themselves, most people will take more for themselves. Even though a tiny amount of cheating is intolerable, so your happiness and success will depend on your controls. I have repeatedly learned this lesson the hard way. A. Investigate and let people know you are how you are going to investigate. Investigate and explain to people that you are going to investigate so that there are no surprises. Security con controls should not be taken personally by the people being checked, just like a teller shouldn't view the bank counting the money in the drawer, rather than just, just accepting the teller's count. As an indication that the bank thinks the teller is dishonest, explain that concept to employees so that they understand it. But even the best controls will never be foolproof. For that reason, among many others, trustworthiness is a quality that should be appreciated. B. Remember that there is no sense in having laws unless you have policemen or auditors. The people doing the auditing should report to the people outside the department being audited, and auditing procedures should not be made known to those being audited. This is one of our few exceptions to radical transparency. C. Beware of rubber stamping. When a person's role re involves reviewing or auditing a high volume of transactions or things that other people are doing, there's a real risk of rubber stamping. One particular risk, pr particularly risky example is expense approvals. Make sure you have ways to audit the auditors. D. Recognize that people who make purchases on your behalf probably will not spend your money wisely. This is because 1. It is not their money, and 2. It is difficult to know what the right price should be. For example, if someone proposes a price of 125 k for a consulting project, it is unpleasant, difficult, and confusing to figure out what the market rate is and then negotiate a better price. But the same person who is reluctant to negotiate with the consultant will bargain furiously when he is hiring someone to paint his own house. You need to have proper controls, or better yet, a part of the organization that specializes in this kind of thing. There's retail and there's wholesale. You want to pay wholesale whenever possible. E. Use public hangings to deter bad behavior. No matter how carefully you design your controls and how rigorously you enforce them, malicious and grossly negligent people will sometimes find a way around them. So, when you catch someone violating your rules and controls, 
make sure that everybody sees the consequences. 13.10, have the clearest possible reporting lines and delineations of responsibilities. This applies both within and between departments. Dual reporting causes confusion, complicates prioritization, diminishes focus on clear goals, and muddies the lines of supervision and accountability, especially when the supervisors are in two different departments. When situations require dual reporting, managers need to be informed. Asking someone from another department to do a task without consulting his or her manager is strictly prohibited unless the request will take less than an hour or so. However, appointing co-heads of a department or a sub-department can work well if the managers are in sync and combine complementary and essential strengths. Dual reporting in that case can work well if properly coordinated. A. Assign responsibilities based on workflow design and people's abilities, not job titles. Because someone is responsible for human resources, recruiting, legal, programming, and so forth, doesn't necessarily mean that they are the appropriate person to do everything associated with those functions. For example, though HR people help with hiring, firing, and providing benefits, it would be a mistake to give them the responsibility of determining who gets hired and fired and what benefits are provided to employees. B. Constantly think about how to produce leverage. Leverage in an organization is not unlike leverage in the market. You're looking for ways to achieve more with less. At Bridgewater, I typically work at about 50 to 1 leverage, meaning that for every hour I spend with each person who works for me, they spend about 50 hours working to move the project along. At our sessions, we go over the vision and the deliverables, then they work on them, then we review the work, and they move forward based on my feedback, and we do that over and over again. The people who work for me typically have similar relationships with those who work for them, though their ratios are typically between 10 to 1 and 20 to 1. I am always eager to find people who can do things nearly as well as, and ideally better than I, can do so, that I can maximize my output per hour. Technology is another great tool for providing leverage. To make training as easy to leverage as possible, document the most common questions and answers through audio, video, or written guidelines, and then assign someone to organize them and incorporate them into a manual, which is updated on a regular basis. Principles themselves are a form of leverage. They're a way to compound your understanding of situations so that you don't need to exert the same effort every time you encounter a problem. C. Recognize that it is far better to find a few smart people and give them the best technology than to have a greater number of ordinary people who are less well-equipped. Great people and great technology both enhance productivity. Put them together in a well-designed machine and they improve it exponentially. D. Use leveragers. Leveragers are people who can go from conceptual to practical effectively and do the most to get your concepts implemented. Conceptualizing and managing takes only about 10% of the time needed for implementing, so if you have good leveragers, you can devote a lot more of your time to what's most important to you. 13.11. Remember that almost everything will take more time and cost more money than you expect. Virtually nothing goes according to plan, because one doesn't plan for the things that go wrong. I personally assume things will take about one and a half times as long and cost about one and a half times as much, because that's what I've typically experienced. How well you and the people working with you manage will determine your expectations. <laughs>